Some people think, well, everything must be okay. God hasn't done anything to me yet. Listen, it's in the future. And the Bible is clear that the hottest part of hell isn't just reserved for the prostitute and the pimp and the drunkard and the murderer, but for many self-righteous people who have the blessings of God beyond measure and they do nothing with it. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of chapter 9 of the book of Romans, and today we'll continue to look at how Jesus is God and the only way to salvation. The sinner and the self-righteous both are in need of a Savior, but sometimes it's the person who thinks they are good enough to go to heaven who is the furthest away because they've not recognized their need for Jesus. Now, Paul has already mentioned two of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, in Romans chapter 4. Why are the patriarchs important? Because the patriarchs demonstrated what it was that the Jews in Paul's day should have believed. If they believed what Abraham believed, then they would have embraced Jesus. If you remember, the fourth chapter opens with the word, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? Was Abraham saved by works or was he justified by faith? And then he'll say in the third verse, well, what does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And we went back and we studied that verse in its historical context and we discover that God made a promise to Abraham that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to come from his loins and he believed it. He says, when a man works, his wage is given to him as a favor, not as a favor, but what's due, but to the one who does not work, but like Abraham simply believes, that person's faith is reckoned as righteous. If they believed what Abraham believed, if they believed what Isaac believed, then they would have believed in Jesus. Abraham recognized that his good deeds could not save him, that he needed a savior. And so he's saying, listen, you've been blessed. You were given the fathers, and Abraham was indeed the friend of God, as he's called in both Testaments. He's called the father of all who believe. And if they had just looked back at Abraham, as Jesus said in Luke, uh, John chapter 8, then they would have been children of Abraham, but they were not, except in a physical sense. Now, some of you here this morning, you have a spiritual family tree. Your dad, your mom were born-again believers, and they led you to Christ. For some of you, your grandparents. For some of you, your great-grandparents. Others of you, you've started a new spiritual heritage. But Paul is saying, you want to talk about family tree. You want to talk about family spiritual tree. You can go back millennium. You can go all the way back to Abraham, the father of the faith, but it did you very little good. But beyond that, and this is the point that you don't want to see, from whom, from the fathers, from their loins, notice, is the Christ according to the flesh. And that's why I say this seventh privilege is the greatest privilege. It was the highest and noblest blessing for the Hebrew people to have Messiah. Jesus had Jewish blood flowing through his veins when he walked on this earth. Now, forget all the nonsense on the internet of people denying Jesus' Jewishness. Forget these scholars who sit up there in New York City in their big chairs and their musty offices saying that Jesus was not a Jew. 
That Samaritan woman had it down. She identified him as a Jew, and I think she knew a lot better than they did. The nation of Israel had the fathers, and from their loins came the Messiah. And when Paul thinks about who Jesus is, he just starts to celebrate, and he begins to worship. From whom is the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. Paul, in essence, is saying, forget about the other six blessings. The only purpose of all those other blessings was so that Jesus, the Messiah, might come through Israel into this world. And when he thinks about it, he just wants to stop and he wants to talk about Jesus and he wants to worship. Now, do not miss this. This is an incredible statement when he says that the Christ is God blessed forever. Amen. He is specifically, directly affirming the deity of our Lord and Savior. Forget the Mormons who say that he is a God. He is not a God, and they'll try to trip you up, and they'll say, well, we believe he's the Son of God. He's our Savior. And when they say he's the Son of God, they use the phrase in terms of we're all sons and daughters of God. Forget the Jehovah's Witness. They can't deny that he comes from heaven. So they say, well, he's Michael the archangel. Come to incarnate himself in human flesh. And the word Michael means one who is like God. And so Jesus was formerly Michael the archangel. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is in human, is in human flesh in this verse. From whom the Jewish people comes the Christ who is overall God blessed forever. He is the Christ according to the flesh. That's his humanity. He is overall God blessed forever. That's his deity. It's an indisputable statement of Christ's divinity. Now, follow this carefully. It's a bit of a grammatical argument, and all of us can get a hold of it. But let me read it first from the NIV translation, this verse. It says, theirs are the patriarchs, so you could say the father's. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. Uh, the Net Bible renders it this way. To whom belongs the patriarchs, and from them by human descent came the Christ, who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. The New King James puts it this way. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now, when you read the NAS and the New King James, it may not be quite as apparent, especially if you had the New English instead of the Old English. Uh, when I was going through high school, they were introducing the New English. I thank God that I had a, a lady named Mrs. Ryan. She was 75 years old. She had osteoporosis. Everybody nicknamed her Rat Ryan, but she was a wonderful lady, and she loved Christ as I see now, once I became a believer, but she taught us English grammar. And what's a little difficult in the old King James and the new American standard is if you don't understand English grammar, you might miss the fact that this verse is affirming that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the newer translations, sometimes presuming on the ignorance of its American audience spells it out a little bit more carefully for you, but they spell it out correctly. The King James and the New American Standard is a little more literal, a little more wooden, and sometimes in that literalness, you don't always see what is quite as plain. But let's think our way through it. Take this statement. Carl is not fat, and therefore he runs fast. All right? Carl is not fat, therefore he runs fast. Now, in that sentence, Carl is not fat, therefore he runs fast. Who does the he refer to? 
Carl. So we would say the antecedent for the pronoun he is Carl. It goes back to Carl, clearly. Now, look at your Bible. Look at the verse. You might want to circle a couple of things. First, circle the word God and draw a line back to its antecedent. What is the antecedent here? Who is? It goes back to who is. Then circle the words who is and draw a line back to their antecedent, namely Christ. Paul is simply saying Christ, who is God. Now, follow this. Typically in the Bible, the term God, theos in the New Testament, we get our word theology from it, is the Greek word that God uses to describe God as Father. But we've already seen in our study of Romans that there are times when the word theos, God, is used to designate other members of the Trinity. For instance, God the Holy Spirit is referred to as God. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias, when he was deceitful on that day, this Christian, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the property? And then he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. So we're not surprised that other members of the Trinity are also called Theos because the Bible affirms the deity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not some sub-God. He is not any less God than the Father, and the Spirit is no less God than the Son. They were equal. And so I gave you a diagram, as you can see up here. Uh, bring up that picture. It is an ancient diagram, comes back from one of the oldest churches ever dug up in mosaic, and uh, we've crisp, put it in crisp terms. Uh, you'll see it even in churches from the time of, of the Dark Ages in Latin, but as you can see, God is in the middle, and you see the words, God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, it says the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. And so the Bible affirms the triunity of God, that each member is equally and eternally deity. It's just like in spatial relationships. There's height, there's depth, there's width. The height is not the depth. The depth is not the width. The width is not the height. But you cannot have any kind of a spatial measurement without all three. But they are distinct. It's like time. There's past time, present time, future time. The future is not the past. The past is not the present. The present is not the future. They're inseparable, and yet they are distinct. So unlike oneness Pentecostals who say, well, the Father becomes the Son, and on other occasions He becomes the Spirit. No, the Bible teaches there is one God who exists co-equally, co-eternally, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so here, Paul is affirming the fact that Christ is God-blessed forever. And that doesn't surprise us because that coincides with the rest of Scripture. In John 1.1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not was a God, as the Jehovah's Witness put in their translation of the Bible, the only translation ever produced that came up with that interpretation. Listen, if you were an atheist and a God-hater and you knew Greek, you would know it was absolutely impossible to interpret John 1.1 in that fashion. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then he will say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
The apostle John affirmed the deity of Jesus. Thomas, about eight days after the resurrection, when he sees the nail scars, we are told he fell down and he said, my Lord and my God. Paul, when he writes to Titus, that young pastor, he says, we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. God and Savior in the Greek, because of the endings used, modify Christ Jesus. And so in this verse, it is crisp in the Greek. It is specific in the English that Jesus is God blessed forever. And that's what Paul is affirming. He's saying, listen, Jesus is Jewish in his humanity. He comes as an Israelite according to the flesh, but he's not simply a Jewish man. He is God in human flesh. Now, again, we've just cracked the door to Romans chapter 9. And the reason I went through each of these seven privileges that may have seemed a little tedious for some of us is because they become critical to a proper understanding of election. And we're not done with them because Paul's not done with them. But when you come to this section of Scripture, you're going to see that some, because they think in their mind that God is done with the Jew, that Romans 9 through 11 is not dealing with God choosing Israel out of all the nations of the world, but God choosing some people in this auditorium to go to heaven and some people choosing God in this auditorium to go to hell. Sorry if I pointed to you, brother. (laughs) But that's not what it says. Now, understand, where did that come from? Well, there was a a Christian whom we will meet in heaven, and I'm going to give you some of his teaching a little bit later. His name was St. Augustine. And Augustine taught that God was done with the Jewish people. There came a time in the history of the church where a very formalized organization known as the Roman Catholic Church developed. And the Roman Catholic Church said that the Pope had basically taken Moses' place, and the Roman Catholic Church had taken Israel's place, and they still teach that today. They teach that they are the one true church. Now, the people who typically get the press in our day from the time of what we call the Reformation are these men who came out of Catholicism and were saved. And so you know names like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Swingley and Melanchthon and others like him. Understand, all during the ages, even when there was this big formalized church called the Roman Catholic Church, God always had his congregations just like this. People who were Bible-believing Christians. But the folks who got the most press were these who were Catholics, and then they protested against the teaching of Rome. And so what they ended up doing is they understood, no, salvation is not through the church. Salvation is through the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have to personally receive him and be born again. But understand, these guys who came out of Catholicism, many of them, because they were so close to Catholicism, had their view tainted by Catholicism. They just took some of the Catholic doctrines and they put a different spin on it. So the Catholic Church said, we are now the new Israel. And you'll hear people in the Reformed faith today say, we're the new Israel, the body of Christ. Oh, no, we are not. God is not done with the Jewish people. God still has a plan for the Jewish people. And so you had guys like Calvin who'd say, you know, they saw the, all this corruption in the church and these uh, priests who are living evil lifestyles, even some popes. And they thought, clearly, they can't be the new Israel. But those who are truly saved, those who are born again, we're the new Israel. 
And so they taught that God was done with the Jewish people. So when they come to Romans 9 through 11, they don't see individual election. They don't see a national election. They see personal election. Why? Because God's done with the Jew. They take something like infant baptism. They don't teach what Catholics teach on infant baptism, that it washes away sin and gives you salvation. But they say, well, there's a covenant agreement that God makes with a parent in his little baby child. And just as the first generation of adults who were circumcised, they later bapt, uh, circumcised their little infants on the eighth day, the first generation of believers were baptized, and now we should baptize little infants. So if you go into the Lutheran church today or the Presbyterian church who have Luther and Calvin respectively as their progenitors, that's what they do. And so their thinking, I believe with all my heart, was tainted. And so when it says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated... They're going to say, God chose and created Jacob to be saved, but God chose and he created Esau to be lost. And I do not believe that for one skinny minute. And this is why I am taking the time to look at these seven principles that Paul is going to unfold. Notice what he says in this verse when he describes these seven blessings. He prefaces the list by saying, to whom belongs? Not to whom belonged, but he uses a tense in the original that indicates that these seven blessings still belong to the Jewish people. Now, I know I'm talking over some people's heads today. Some of you are brand new Christians. You say, I don't know what he's talking about. This is like way over me, Pastor. It may not be important to you today, but there's coming a time when it will be important to you. But there's something here for all of us. So let's talk about how we can apply this text this morning. Several applications I could suggest. First, I believe it's possible to have great spiritual privileges from God and still not be a child of God. Uh, to use a modern day expression, to be born with a silver spoon in your mouth, to be incredibly privileged and not to respond to those privileges. So here's Israel. They're graced with God's presence. They're given God's promises. But in spite of their position, in spite of their promises, in spite of their principles, in spite of their prophecies, they, they miss the Redeemer of the world. And so John can summarize what was true out of the millions of Jews who were alive in Jesus' day, though tens of thousands of them responded. For the most part, millions rejected him. And so John says he came to his own, but his own received him not. They rejected the Messiah even though they were born with a silver spoon in their mouths. Now, what silver spoon has God given some of you this morning? All of us have been blessed in so many different ways, physically and spiritually. Most all of you last night had a warm house to sleep in. Most of you can go home and there's food in your refrigerator to eat. Very few, if any, on any given week have to walk to church. You own an automobile to get here. Spiritually speaking, you have in your laps a copy of the Word of God. You have in your laps a personal copy of both Testaments. Something that people would dream about for centuries. You have been blessed in one sense in that you are born Americans and we have a great Judeo-Christian heritage. And yet, what have we done with that? You know, I saw that bumper sticker again this week. It said, try Jesus. 
Have you ever thought about that? Some of you this morning maybe are thinking about trying Jesus, but I want to tell you, you don't try Jesus. You don't try Jesus like a coat I try on. If it doesn't fit right, I'll try another one. Or I'll try this recipe, and if I don't like the way it tastes, I'll try another one. He's not some spiritual experiment to make your life happy. He's not someone that you just get to keep you from dealing with your problems. He's not someone to just check in with now and then. Certainly, he is not someone on the same level as Buddha or Allah or somebody else. He is, in Paul's words, God over all, blessed forever. And he is the only way of salvation. He is not someone you try. He is someone that you submit to as Lord and Savior. J. Sidlow Baxter, the great expositor in the last century, now in heaven, wrote these words. Our Lord's message was himself. He did not come merely to preach the gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not merely come to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not merely come to point men to the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. He is overall God bless forever. Amen. But it is possible to be born with a silver spoon, and because the silver spoon is in your mouth, you think you're right with God. That's what the Jews thought, and that's what Paul's going to teach us in Romans 10. Second, I learned from this text of Scripture that with great spiritual privileges comes great accountability. Now, again, he's going to speak of that further on in this section, but he's already addressed it back as far as Romans chapter 2. Let me dust off your minds and refresh you with that verse. He said in Romans 2, 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This verse teaches that God's riches, God's kindness, God's tolerance, God's patience is to lead us to repentance, to a change of mind, to give us space to repent. But some people, when they look at the blessings of God, they actually use it as an excuse not to believe. They think, well, I must be living right. No one in my family is really drastically sick. I must be living right. I've got plenty of money in my bank account. I must be living right. I'm not feeling any serious pain. That doesn't mean you're living right. Jesus affirmed that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God in his goodness expresses his goodness to all men saved and and lost alike. It's the goodness, it's the kindness of God that should lead us to repentance. Sometimes we think the bottom needs to fall out for for someone to receive Christ. It might for some, but God would rather bless you over the top and get your attention and bring you to genuine repentance. And it's a fearful thing when God has given you so many blessings and you do nothing with it. The kindness of God should lead us to repentance. But what did it lead to the Jew to in Romans 4, 5? Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. He said, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Just as a born-again Christian is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, once he is saved, as he yields to that grace and he serves God, he's storing up treasure in addition to the fact that he's going to heaven. He's laying up for himself treasure in heaven. The corollary could be true of a lost person here today. Some of us are treasuring up, literally, storing up wrath in the day of wrath. 
We've seen in Romans, there are two expressions of the wrath of God. There is the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven when God lifts his hand off of a nation and he lets them go wild into sin. And we're seeing that in America today. That's the wrath of God that is being revealed. But Paul also speaks of a future dimension of God's wrath that is coming when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his angels in flaming fire and he deals out retribution to those who do not know God. Some people think, well, everything must be okay. God hasn't done anything to me yet. Listen, it's in the future. And the Bible is clear that the hottest part of hell isn't just reserved for the prostitute and the pimp and the drunkard and the murderer, but for many self-righteous people who have the blessings of God beyond measure and they do nothing with it. And that was the Jew in Paul's day. Self-righteous. And they thought they were closer to God than those hardcore pagan Gentiles. The fact of the matter is, is that often the prostitute and the tax collector were closer than they were, as Jesus taught in the parable of the two sons. He said, truly, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you do. They needed forgiveness, and they missed it. And God doesn't want you this morning to bring your self-righteousness to Him. He wants you to bring your sin. Now, if you don't get anything else out of this passage this morning, understand that all of us need forgiveness. And I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times you've done it. I don't care what the nature of your sin is. You need forgiveness. There's not a single solitary thing that you've ever done that God cannot forgive. But the tragedy of tragedies is that people die without Jesus Christ, and once they cross over to the other side, there is no forgiveness. And not only is that the tragedy of tragedies that they miss heaven, but they miss life on earth because Jesus Christ came to save us and to change us and to fulfill us into a relationship with the living God. That's the power of the gospel. You may be listening to me today and you're a drug addict. You're enslaved to some sin. You may be in some prison listening to my voice. Some of you are listening and you've wrecked your life. You've wrecked your family. And you're thinking, what can God do for me? My friend, he can save you. He can redeem you. And he can pick up the pieces right where you are at and give you a brand new start. But you must come through the cross of Christ. Have you done that? I invite you to do it today. Now, our Father, we thank you that one cannot get so low that you cannot lift them up. One cannot get so far away that you cannot bring them back. One cannot be such a wicked enemy that you cannot reconcile them. For you promise that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help some dear unrepentant sinner today to change their mind to repent. And come and submit to Jesus as Lord. Our Father, as we study through these passages in the days ahead, when we are done, I pray and ask that above all else, that we would have a passion like the Apostle Paul does for those who are lost. May we care for the souls of men. May we be obedient to the commission of your Son who came to seek and to save that which is lost. And we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your mighty and holy name. Amen. We have all sinned, and therefore we all need a Savior. We hope you have made that decision to follow Jesus Christ. 
If not, allow us to send some information about how to have a personal relationship with God. Just call us at 877-787-7478 and ask for the Would You Like God as Your Friend package. And to listen again to today's message entitled, The Privileges of Israel, use the Search the Scriptures app available from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. Or you can also visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or call us at 877-787-7478 to request a CD or DVD copy. Tomorrow we'll continue our look at Romans chapter 9. Join us then as we search the scriptures.